Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Okay, good. All right. Let's pray, and we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 2 and work through just two verses. So Galatians chapter 2, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Lord's day. Thank you that we can gather together and, and fix our minds on you and things above. Father, we pray as we uh, study your word this morning that you would illumine our minds, that we would, uh, by your spirit, that these truths would sink deeply in our hearts and would be encouraging to us uh, this day and in the days and months to come. So bless uh, the words of my mouth and all the meditations of our heart. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to read uh, from the beginning of the chapter, but we will be focused on 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16. This is the word of the Lord. Then after an interval of 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, 
and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. So, that last verse there, 15 and 16, really 16, is sort of the thematic statement of the entire book. It's getting to uh, the nub of the issue. It is, this book is about justification. How are we made righteous before God? And so, it starts there. And basically, through chapter 5, he's arguing for this doctrine, um, singular focus on this doctrine, because that's the doctrine that was at stake in the churches of that region of modern Turkey uh, in Galatia. And so, to summarize, to, to get right to the point... Um, We learn that we are saved by faith and not by works. And so let that sink in. We are saved by faith and not by works. We are saved by faith alone and not by works. And so we have to stop and think about that. A little bit. We have to stop and think about what is faith, what are works, how are they, um, how do we get this wrong, how, how has the church through the ages gone off the rails one way or the other um, as far as a doctrine of justification, how we are made right with God. Is it by faith? Is it by works? Is it by some combination of the two? Is it half me, half God? Is it a quarter me, three quarters God? Is it not me and all God? Is it um, all me and not God? All of which have been uh, professed at certain points of the church. But we, coming out of the Reformation, where this Galatians was the book that uh, Luther and Calvin went to for this key doctrine that was being debated at that time. And this is where the truth of salvation by faith alone is taught. Luther said this teaching, justification by faith alone, is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all Christian godliness consists. And then he said, we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. You can't, the importance of this doctrine in understanding how we relate to God and God relates to us and the whole testimony of Scripture, this doctrine is at its heart. Are we going to be saved by God Through faith, or are we going to be saved by our own efforts that put God in our debt? Okay? And this is the the chief doctrine of the Christian faith. It is non-negotiable. 
It is a non-negotiable doctrine. If you refuse this doctrine, if you set this doctrine aside, if you reject this doctrine, you are a heretic, and you will be damned, okay? Justification by faith alone is that important. Um, This doctrine is, in fact, what separates the Christian religion from all other religions, every single other religion. This is the distinctive. Um, All other religions rely on man's work apart from God, or man's work to impress God, or man's work mixing with God's work to produce a synergistic path to salvation. All of those views that man can save himself, that man can, can work meritoriously to put God in their debts, or that it's a mixing of partially God, partially man, um, are destroyed by this doctrine and by the teaching of this book, and in fact, the teaching of this one verse, verse 16. So what is justification? Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Okay, that's a good way to remember it. Both of those things, justification and condemnation, are declarations by a judge. The judge, in this case, when it comes to our souls, being God. But uh, an earthly judge either condemns or justifies, right? And, um, and God has the power to acquit and the power to condemn. He does so by his free choice uh, in eternity past, right? The elect and the non-elect. He has, and then they are justified, the elect are justified in time. But justification is, is a declaration that you are not guilty. Condemnation is the declaration that you are guilty. So when we're talking about justification, we're talking about a declaration by God of your status. Doesn't mean you're righteous. It means you're declared righteous. It doesn't mean you're without sin. It means your sins are forgiven. It doesn't mean you're pure. It means that God has declared you pure by the blood of his son. And so we, we need to get that um, clearly in our head. And we would, you know, just briefly, there's a, there's a separation, or there should be in our minds, between justification and sanctification. Justification is legal declaration. Sanctification is actual growth and holiness, becoming holier, repenting of sins, putting things down, and taking up righteousness. Right? That is a synergistic work. God working in us as we work. Okay? But justification, we have no part in that. God declares just or damned, just or condemned. Uh, you'll notice that our passage from the second half of verse 14, if you're looking in the, the New American Standard Bible, I didn't look at other Bibles. Um, translations, but from the second half of verse 14 until um, verse 21, you'll notice all of that's in quotes. And so, um, 
it is assumed that this, this is a summary from 14, the second half, all the way to 21. It's a summary of what the Apostle Paul said to Peter. So it's in quotes, as if these things were said. Now, it could be that, you know, it could be that verse 14 is what he said to the Apostle. I mean, there aren't quote, quote marks in the original Greek. Okay, it's an editorial decision, and so you have to you have to interpret that by context. But the translators are trying to give us some help, and so it could be that the Apostle Paul said what's in verse 14, right to the face of Peter, and then from 15 to 21 he starts teaching based upon uh, the Apostle Peter's error. Um, either way, uh, either way, these things. Uh, needed to be spoken, and the context is this confrontation between Peter and Paul. So verse 15, taking that up, and just a little bit of context, remember uh, the problem was Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, and then some, some men from Jerusalem maybe from James, maybe imposters, we're not sure, came to Antioch, and then suddenly with these Jerusalemites in Antioch, Peter's like, oh man, I, you know, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to um, quench their zeal. I don't want to uh, get them angry at me, and so I'm going to hold myself back from the Gentiles now, and I'm only going to eat with the Jews. That was the issue. And we talked about it last time. We talked about how could the Apostle Paul, who had Timothy circumcised, you know, do this and get so hot about this. But that's what the rest of the book proves, is how important this was that the Apostle Paul take on the Apostle Peter. We, it very well could have ended up that the church would have been split between Jews and Gentiles, even to this very age. And that would have not been proper. So verse 15, he's going into the arguments. He's, um, and he says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So what's he getting at here? Why would he why would he use that word with the Gentiles? Why would he go after them that way? It seems like when you've got this, this caustic situation, this really intense situation between Jews and Gentiles, you wouldn't want to characterize and use that word to speak of the, uh, of the Gentiles. Well, here's what he's saying, best I can make out. Um, Paul and Peter are Jews by nature, meaning they are Jews by birth. Okay, that's what he means by that. They're Jews by, by birth, which gives them what? Many advantages, right? Just like covenant children born into a church have many advantages, the Jews had many advantages being born into covenant with God, okay? That's the Apostle Paul's argument in the book of Romans. In Romans 3, 2 to 3, he says, what the, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
right? That they got, they had the word of God. They had prophets that were speaking to them the very word of the Almighty. And then later in Romans, Romans chapter 9, at verse 4, he says, uh, for, I uh, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, other Jews, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. And so, so what he's saying here is the Jews have been blessed and we've been blessed by being Jews. We've been in covenant with God. The Gentiles, not at all. And so he's using sinners in the sense of the Jews have been blessed to be in covenant with God and now these are non-covenanted pagans, these Gentiles. And then what's, and so there is that contrast there. He's drawing a contrast between those who had privileges and those who did not have all of those privileges. Believers and pagans. Okay, and so he uses that word here. He's not trying to insult them, he's trying to make the contrast huge between the privilege of the Jews and the lack of privilege of the Gentiles. And then the next word is very important. Nevertheless, nevertheless, right? Very important word because what he's going to do is what exactly what he does in Romans 1 through 3, which is he levels the playing field between Jew and Gentile. Absolutely levels it and says all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Even if you had privileges, you knew that you needed to look to Christ by faith to be saved. And none of those sacrifices would ultimately save you. Right? You needed to look to Christ just as the Gentiles need to look to Christ for their salvation. And so verse 16, he says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, and the, the definite article is not, actually there. That's why I've skipped it. It doesn't say the works of the law, it says works of the law. So knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. So what are works of the law? Is he only now speaking of the ceremonial law, right? The sacrifices, the cleanliness laws, the things that made Israel distinct as a nation, circumcision, all those things. Is he just talking about that? No. He's going way beyond that, right? He is talking about any works, any works of the law, any human efforts at all on behalf of one's salvation, any human efforts on behalf of one's salvation, that's what he's talking about when he says works of the law, right? Notice that Paul does not say, well, it, if, it may be that way in your translation, maybe not. 
He does not say the works of the law, but works of the law. No definite article which points it to being more expansive than just the moral law or Mosaic law as a whole. So he's talking about human effort of any kind. Any rule you make that you think will impress God and put him in your debt, right? A pilgrimage, climbing a mountain, drinking the blood of a sacrificed virgin, um, putting up a totem pole, uh, whatever it may be, slaying your enemies, whatever works have been done in the name of religion that, that are done in order to procure somebody's salvation is what he's talking about here. And so, think about this. Not even keeping the Ten Commandments would justify us. If we kept those Ten Commandments perfectly, okay, that is the standard of righteousness, and Jesus kept that standard of righteousness, but we were born in corruption. We inherited corruption from Adam. So even if we kept those laws, we're still condemned by our nature, which we inherit from Adam by birth, by virtue of being born in a natural way from a sinner before us, right? And so we would be corrupt. All fall short and cannot keep the commandments. We cannot keep the commandments. We can't. We can't, we can't, we can't. Okay? Paul in Philippians verse 9, right? He goes through all of his works circumcised the eighth day, a Benjamite, as to the law, blameless, a persecutor of the church, right? But whatever things were gained to me, these things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now listen to this. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from law. Right? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Right? So there he says it. He's like, I've got more works than anybody. I am righteous. Righteous, more righteous than perhaps any man alive. I have hit all of the things. Born a Jew, right? Not just born a Jew, but a Benjamite. Not just a Benjamite, but a Pharisee, right? Blameless, according to the law. And he says, rubbish, all of that did not contribute anything to my salvation. Only faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason, this, the reason we have to think about this, one, it's truth and it's revealed in the Scripture, but two, every scheme that man comes up with in order to earn his salvation by meritorious works absolutely makes a fool of God. It diminishes God's holy, holy, holiness. It diminishes it. It brings it down. It 
It makes God impressed with the fact that you went to Mass 20 weeks in a row. And he's never sinned and he hates sin and sin cannot abide in his presence. He is holy, thrice holy, right? He hates sin. He abominates sin. And we say, you know, we took the sacrament. He owes us a little something. We're, we're, we're impressive. And so what you end up doing when you make these laws when you try to justify yourself by meritorious works, you're actually diminishing God's holiness. You're making a mockery of God and his holiness. His holiness is unutterably pure. It is beyond what we with sinful minds can even imagine. Right? It, he, he is... Um, when he saw violence on the earth during the days of Noah, what did he do? He killed everybody, except for the one who found favor in his eyes, Noah and his family. But he wiped out humanity, okay? The, the, the holiness of God is, is unutterably pure, and any, any thought that man can do something that God is like, oh, man, I owe that guy something. That was really impressive. I mean, I should, you know, if he does that two more times, wow, I'm going to have to allow him to come into my presence, you know? And it's just, it's ridiculous. If you know anything about your own depravity, if you know anything about your own sin, if you know anything about your thoughts, if you have any self-awareness that came by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and revealing all of your corruption to you, by which you cried out to God and said, I, I can't do anything. I can't do anything right. I sin and sin and sin and sin and sin. God, save me. And so let's be careful that when it, comes to, when it comes to justification, if we let works in, we are actually diminishing God's glory. We are, we are bringing Him down. And that may be the most offensive part of jettisoning, jettisoning this doctrine, is it diminishes God's glory. God is angered. By our self-righteousness. Right? What does he call it in Isaiah 64? He calls our righteousness menstrual rags. That's what he calls them. That's our self-righteousness. That's about as, as high as our works get. Menstrual rags, just meant to be discarded and burned up. Okay? And so God is angered by our self-righteousness, especially angered by our self-righteousness when he has provided the perfect sacrifice and has just called us to believe. So what is faith? Right? Faith is mentioned in this verse. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by, the, by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... 
Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. Well, from one of the commentaries I'm reading here, here's what, a, what faith is not. Faith is not mere assent to doctrine. It's not just assent to doctrine, right? It's not, you know, it's not um, believing the five points of, of, you know, Calvinism. It's not the, uh, the doctrines of grace. It's not just mere assent saying those are true. Assent would be to say, yeah, I like those. Those are good. They make sense. That's not faith. Okay? It's not mere assent, okay? Um, faith is not faith in faith. Have you ever heard somebody say, you just have to have faith? With no object, no doctrinal commitments, right? No, no like, object of that. It's just like some amorphous spiritual thing, faith, Right? You, you often will, will hear people say that. The American civil religion, right, that, that really doesn't like Jesus will talk a lot about just faith, but the, the, that faith has no object. And so that's not the faith we're talking about here. It's not faith in God generally. You've heard the phrase, no atheist in a foxhole. That's not faith in Jesus Christ, Okay. That's being scared out of your wits and praying for the first time in your life and, and not knowing anything about the object or who you are praying to, right? Not faith in God generally, like the deists, right? There's, there's some power, and I believe he's there. That won't save you. That will not save you. It's not faith in the church either, right? As, as the, the Roman Catholics would teach, right? Put your faith in the church. Um, part of that, be in on the inside. That is not what is said here. So what is it? Again, I'm taking from this commentary. Um, he says, saving faith is specifically trust in Jesus Christ, in his sin-bearing death on the cross for my sin. It is not merely belief in God's existence. Remember, as James says, the demons believe and tremble. It is not even trust in God generally. It is specifically trust in and commitment to Christ. It is the whole person trusting in the whole Christ. It is the whole person with mind, will, and emotions. It is the whole person agreeing with God's word, turning our will away from sin to Christ, and grieving our sin and rejoicing in our salvation as we surrender to him as Savior and Lord. Those who so turn are justified, declared to be not guilty, counted as righteous in his sight, acquitted in the heavenly court, forgiven of their sins." The moment that we believe, it's done. The moment that we have that faith, it's done. It's done. It's a done deal. Right? The instant that we trust, we are forgiven. 
Not when we first get our lives straightened out, not when we first clean up our act, but then, at the moment of trust, we are saved. We are, as Luther said at once, simul justus a peccator, at once just and a sinner. Justified but still a sinner, a sinner yet justified, right? Simultaneously uh, justified and a sinner. And so that is so important that, that we notice in the verse, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law but through faith, in Christ Jesus. So many people want Christianity without Christ. Right? They want sort of a generic Christian ethos. But they have never come to terms with the incarnation. Right? The life, the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Right? And that's not Christianity. That's something else. That, that, that is not Christianity. Christianity has to do with Christ. And the only way that any of us will ever be saved is to have faith in Christ. To believe that he is who he said he was and he did what he said he did. That's it. That's, the, that's God's method of saving mankind. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament point toward Christ. Christ came, lived among us, died, rose again, right? Took his, became our sin, took on the wrath of God, died, he rose, he sits to the right hand of God, and we wait for him to return and judge the living and the dead. And so... Christless Christianity is not Christianity at all. I mean, it's obvious to say that, but it's so common. Okay? I mean, how many churches could we go to in our city today where all they would be talking about are weak little good works? You know, be nice to your friends sort of sermons. You just got to be nice. Can't we all just get along? Right? But no mention of, you can't love your friends. Now, you need Jesus. You wicked sinners. Right? You need Christ. You need to believe that he was, that he lived, that he died, that he rose. That specific God-man. Ever that man. Humanity glorified to the right hand of God in Him. And so there is, no, there is no salvation with everything generic. There you have to deal with Jesus Christ. Faith has to be in Him. Faith comes to understand that that is, He is my only way of being saved. He is. What he did is my only, only route to eternal life, um, to, the, to avoiding the wrath of the Father, which is coming on the disobedient, right? 
The confession of faith talks has a whole chapter on saving faith. And so I want to conclude there, the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It also has a chapter on works, which we could read here, because faith is contrasted with works, and um, there's, there is a lot of helpful teaching in that chapter on works. But one of the things they say in that chapter on works is, if you elevate works, you misunderstand the infinite distance between you and God which is what I was saying earlier about bringing God down so that we might impress him with the tithing of, of herbs that we put into our chili. He's not impressed. Right? He's not impressed. He doesn't desire sacrifice. Faith is that which saves. How is Abraham saved? looking forward to the sacrifice, even back to Abraham, right? And so in the chapter on saving faith in the Westminster Confession, listen to what they say, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer it is increased in strength. And strengthened. So they're saying that, that the grace of faith that comes to us comes from the Spirit. It's not even ours. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That faith is a gift from God. And so that being a gift, the Spirit comes into the elect and then they have faith. It's worked in them, right? And then how does it normally work? By the ministry of the Word. By the preaching of the word, by the reading of the word, by the word of God, uh, by eyes being opened by the Spirit to the word of God. That's why we pray for illumination before we study the word of God and before the word is preached. So that's what they're saying there. Second section, by this faith a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace where God promised that he would save, right? That he would provide the sacrifice. And, and so that the principal acts of saving faith, it says, are accepting, receiving, and resting. Knowledge, assent, trust. Knowledge, assent, trust. You got to know Christ. You got to assent to what he's saying and believe it. And then you trust in him. You throw yourself at his mercy and say, I, I need, I need you. Third, the third section, this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, 
may be often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory. Growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. And so, so they, they're saying saving faith at times, you just got a flicker of it. It's just like, it feels like that, that ember is going to stop glowing. And then other times you can attain full assurance. You know, it's a raging fire of faith. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it's often assailed, it's weakened, but it gets the victory. That faith, that faith in Christ that despairs of self and, and looks to Christ and says, I can't save myself, save me, save me. And so that's, that's what we're getting at in, in this, these, this one verse. Nevertheless, now, um, one other thing to point out in the verse. Notice what he says in the last phrase. Since by, the works, since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And he says no flesh just to bring Jews and Gentiles together and handle them as one, right? It's like it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, no flesh is going to be justified by works of, of the law. None at all. There is one way of salvation, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Now stop and think about that. Is your faith in Jesus Christ? You know, do you have him right? Have you learned about him from Scripture? Or is he just some, you know, undefined force in your mind? He's not a person. He may have lived. He may not have lived. I don't know. Well, that kind of, that kind of, of doubt is not faith. Faith is Jesus is the second person of the eternal trinity. He took to himself human flesh. He lived on earth for 30-some years. As the Lamb of God, never once breaking the law, not at all, so that he would be the perfect sacrifice, right? No blemish, had to be no blemish. On the cross, God the Father poured out his wrath on, that, on his Son, right? Sacrificing him. And what was he on that cross? He was your sins, right? He, he became the curse. He became your sin. And God poured out his wrath upon the Son. And, and, and that man died. And then went into a grave. And three days later, he was gone. He rose from the dead. And he went and ministered to his apostles for a few weeks. And then they saw him go up in the clouds to be with his father, taking you with him by virtue of your union with Christ, taking you with him up into the heavenlies, right? At least taking your humanity with him up into the heavenlies to the right hand of God, where he now continually intercedes for you. If you have faith in him, 
He lives now to make intercession for you to the right hand, and then one day he's going to come again, and, and he's going to give you a reward, receive a crown, a place to live, eternal rest. You enter into a Sabbath. This is reality. You ought to be excited about this as much as your next vacation, if not more. This is a Sabbath that lasts forever. This is reality. This, dear brothers and sisters, is what will happen. It is happening now, okay? And so trust in Christ. It is, this is truth. This is the word of God. We trust its testimony. And the way that you're saved is by going to the, the feet of Christ and saying, I have sinned. And I can't save myself, but I know that you can save me because you're righteous and you rose from the dead and you were powerful. You were strong to save. And so that's faith. That's faith. And that's what we, we the, the devil attempts to get us to forget that simple truth about this world. He does it through all the other messages that we receive about how this world is and what salvation is. Right? Most of which is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then nothing. That's, that's a tragic error. Well, let's, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to the gospel, to the truth, to, to him. And we do love Jesus. We love him for all that he has done. Our faith is in him. Father, we, we continually sin. And we need that declaration of righteousness. We need that justification. And Father, we thank you that it is simply by faith and not by our works because our works are weak. They are powerless. They are filthy. And so we thank you for providing everything, everything for our salvation. May we grow in our faith. May our faith just burn into a raging fire and always be strong right up until... Uh, we stand in your presence, clothed in Christ's righteousness.